when you wake up to some of these issues and see them for what they are, you wish, you sort of wish you hadn't woken up. You sort of wish you didn't know. And the wisest people, when you see them, look in their eyes and you'll see sadness. The wisest people, the ones that are most awake, are the ones that are saddest because they've seen the cruel nature of this planet. So the Eightfold Path, Bernadette, really quickly. How much time do we have? You have have lots of time. You have till 2.20. Whoa. I know. I'm going to sleep good tonight. Okay, yes. So the Eightfold Path. This is the path to nirvana. The Buddha laid this out. He gave his first talk, Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta. Find it on the internet. He gave his first talk to five ascetics. He said, I have discovered four universal truths. The first truth I have discovered is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory. Not always, but ultimately. The second truth, I have found why it is ultimately unsatisfactory because of our desire and craving and thirst that can't be quenched. The third truth, I have discovered the answer to this unsatisfactoriness, and it is called nirvana. Fourth truth, the path to nirvana. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Those eight path factors lead us to the end of suffering. We can put them into three categories. Personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. In the first category of personal discipline, we find right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Right speech, four component parts to right speech. Don't lie, don't gossip, don't use harsh speech. Three components. Okay, so look at your speech, and and how often do you gossip or watch TMZ? That would be wrong speech. How often do you lie? How often are you harsh in the way you answer? Do you know? So we want to watch that because what happens when you do that? People suffer more, they don't suffer less. Okay? Right action. Not to kill, not to steal, no sexual misconduct. Not to kill, we've talked about. Not to steal, people think they own stuff, they get receipts. Every time you buy something, you have a receipt, that means ownership has been transferred to you. Do you really own anything? Can you even own yourself? Can you change the way you're aging? Medically you can, and in LA a lot of people do. But really, you can't. It just sort of happens. We don't own ourselves. We don't own our car. We don't own our guitar. We're just using it until somebody wants it more than we do, or it's stolen, or the new model comes out, and our model is not acceptable any longer. If you steal something or take something from someone who thinks they own it, in reality they're just using it, you cause them to suffer because now their ownership comes into question. No sexual misconduct. This is getting more and more difficult for a lot of people. But in Buddhism, it's like so easy. Four four things to avoid. And I have to tell you that all Buddhists don't avoid the four things. First thing, don't have sex with people that are married. Number one. 
Number two, don't have sex with people who are engaged. Number three, don't have sex with children. Number four, don't have sex with people against their will. That's it. You would think we could live by those four things in harmony with the whole world, and yet people are always, especially if you watch, you know, TMZ, all the celebrities exchanging mates and partners, and you're going, oh man, you know, they're breaking those precepts, they're causing suffering, people aren't happy, and people are against their will. We had that one guy who got six months in jail, yeah, yeah. yeah. and you just look at that and you go, ah, you know, really bad karma, and really stupid. And if he had followed the Buddhist four rules of sexual misconduct, he wouldn't have ended up in, in court in the first place. It's a bummer. So why do people have sex? Because the universe pushes us in that direction 24-7. There is no rest. There is no place to hide from the urges that the universe give us. And why did the universe give us those urges? Because we need more people on this earth. We don't have enough people. We only have seven billion. We need more. And if you can't have some, you can go to a doctor and he can fix that and you can have some of your own instead of adopting some that are already here. Now the Dalai Lama was asked once about birth control. They said to the Dalai Lama, what is a good form of birth control that everybody could practice? And he thought for a moment and he said, well, you know, each family could designate one daughter or one son as a monk or a nun. We'd have fewer people and more spirituality. I thought, right on. So me, being a monk, I'm not allowed to have sex. There's nothing wrong with sex. Everybody has it, except monks and nuns. And why is that the case? Why do you think we would have that prohibition put on us? Well, number one, it's really expensive to have sex, to have children, to have houses, to have cars, to have college tuition, to have medical insurance, to get new clothes, to get new shoes. It's about $250,000 for each kid these days, from birth till 18. Man, that's a lot of money. And the Buddha said, you guys are going to be living on donations. And you can never count on donations. Sometimes people give you a lot, sometimes people give you nothing. So you don't have the right job to have a family. Your lifestyle is going to be one of simplicity, not complexity. So get that out of your mind. But number two, he said, the most important reason monks and nuns are not allowed to have children or have sex or have a family is because you will be happy, you'll be in love, you'll have all those things going on for you except one thing that you'll never have. And that one thing you'll never have is freedom. You'll never be free in a relationship. No way, I said. Way, he said. So the idea for a monk or nun is to have a simple life and to work on being free. And that does, that's not a big calling for most people, you know? Freedom or sex? Which one would you like to have? Oh, I think I'll go for sex. 
freedom, what, what is freedom? Well, in Buddhism, it's a specific kind of freedom. As you may have guessed by now, it's freedom from suffering. You'll never have to suffer. Make sense so far? Okay, right livelihood. Buddha said, find a way to make a living that reduces suffering rather than increases suffering. And I was giving a talk at USC to some business majors, and one of the guys said, is it okay for a Buddhist to make a lot of money? You know? I said, oh yeah, absolutely. Make as much money as you can, because then you can give that much more money away. Generosity. Okay, meditation. Second category, mental purification. Right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Right effort to avoid unskillful thoughts. To get rid of unskillful thoughts once they arise. To hold on to skillful thoughts and to develop skillful thoughts that aren't already there. Now you know what the skillful thoughts are and the unskillful thoughts. Skillful thought is generosity, compassion, wisdom. Unskillful thought is greed, hatred, and delusion. We have two kinds of Buddhist meditation. We have Samatha meditation and Vipassana meditation. Samatha meditation is tranquility meditation that the Buddha learned from the yogis and spiritual people of India. There were 40 kinds of tranquility meditation and there were four kinds of insight meditation which he rediscovered it had been lost to the world and insight meditation vipassana is the most direct route to nirvana but the buddha did both he did samatha and he did vipassana so let me give you a quick example of vipassana mindfulness mindfulness of sensations you sit down cross-legged on the floor and you come to notice all the sensations being produced in your body and your mind. And you note them as a sensation and then you leave it behind and find another one and find another one and find another one. Then at the end you would go into a deep state of reflection and you would say, do all these sensations bear the mark of impermanence? Every sensation I found in my body or my mind, were they impermanent or did they have an extension of life that went beyond the meditation period? And you'd have to say to yourself, no, they were all impermanent. They kept jumping around and sometimes the knee hurt and sometimes it didn't. Sometimes I felt emotionally struggling with things and other times it was just plain and simple. And so you come to the conclusion that everything is impermanent in mind and body, and then you apply that to the world, and you say everything's impermanent in the world, and you go, okay, deep insight. Now, you say to yourself, every sensation I became aware of, were they ultimately unsatisfactory? And you would say, well, um, in the beginning, most of them are going to be unsatisfactory. It's going to be pain or discomfort, but some will be pleasant. But you factor in impermanence to the pleasant sensations and you realize that even a pleasant sensation because of impermanence becomes unpleasant when it goes away. Bummer. Deep insight. Number two. Third. Did any of these sensations have an essence? Did they stand alone? Were they unconditional? Were they supported by a variety of situations? Or did they simply exist? 
And with deep reflection and insight into the true nature of that, you'd have to say all these sensations I felt were supported by a variety of things and that none of them stood alone. And then you look at the world and you say, was there anything in the world that stands alone, that's independent, that's unconditional? And you say, no, everything is dependent on something else for its existence. We're dependent on air and water and food and shelter and clothing and medicine and the list goes on and on. And without all those, we lose our health and without some of them, we lose our life. So all things are interconnected and conditional and dependent on other things. Third deep insight, bang. That allows you to stop clinging. That allows you to stop grasping. Stop pushing away. You've seen the true nature now, according to Buddhism. Then we come to the wisdom aspects. And one, the first one is right view. Right view of the Eightfold Path, Four Noble Truths, right view of karma. And then right intention would be the intention of generosity, compassion, and kindness, which will manifest in speech and action and allow you to transform the world for yourself and help others transform their world, too. Eightfold path. Wow. It's a path of transformation. Path of transformation. So nirvana is transforming your mind, yeah. not your body. Yes. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you for transforming yourself. <laughs> well, that is the spiritual path, this and it's uh, profoundly well stated and explained in Buddhism uh, in a way that you don't see explained in other religions. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that's due to the fact that the Buddha was a very uh, intelligent and psychologically minded person. He was an empiricist. He had that empiricist. empirical yeah. perspective. Right. All based on his own experience. His own observable experience. <laughs> Yeah, so the Buddha was a bit of a scientist, in other words, right? Well, in a way, uh, he would take um, uh, hypotheses or ideas and he would test them out yes. to see if they were true or false. Right. In his own experience. Right, and this is before uh, modern science and medicine, you guys. This is way like before. 500 years before Jesus. And so when you look at the Buddhist religion, uh, try not to confuse the Buddha with other kind of religious leaders like Jesus or Moses. Uh, that's very faith-based. Uh, the Buddha had a very different kind of way in which to understand uh, transcendent reality mm -hmm. by testing everything. Yeah, and, and how it happens. He said, "Be a lamp unto yourself." Uh huh. Yeah. Don't don't expect other power to assist you in your own liberation. Mm -hmm. It's up to you. So there's an accountability. Mm -hmm. um, Profound accountability. And a necessary effort needed. And effort. To make it happen.